0: Alright church, that just is so great to see all that happening out there and the, 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 the laughter, the joy, the handshakes, it's wonderful. It's life at IBC, huh? Absolutely. Before we enjoy God's Word together, uh, last Sunday I stepped up here and told you that my heart was fairly heavy because I thought that we would be losing our, our little dog of uh, 12 years um, that we were going to have to put her down perhaps even that day. And uh, so it was quite a quite a day and uh, we took our dog Shelby off the hill to an emergency vet place and, and uh, they did all the tests and everything and um, we didn't have to put her down. As it turns out, we took her to our vet on Monday morning as well for a second opinion. It turned out that that uh, Shelby had simultaneously blown both of the ACLs in both rear legs, in both rear knees, and could not walk. Um, and still doesn't walk at, hardly at all now. But um, in any case, it wasn't a matter that required putting her down, but it does require a lot of TLC now <laughs> on our part. So I am happy to tell you that we did not have to go in that direction of putting her down and saying goodbye just yet. So a number of you asked about that. I just want to make sure I get that out there in front. So, all right. Well, on to more important things. Uh, The book of 1 John, if you wouldn't mind, grab your Bible and follow me there to 1 John chapter 2 this morning. If you need a Bible, Dennis has got some in his hand ready just to share a copy of God's word with you so you can follow along and be with us in the word. And there's this little note page in your bulletin. I'll ask you to grab that if you wouldn't mind as well. And as many of you might know, when I was a younger man, a much younger man, I was heavily involved in athletics, in team sports and especially in football from um, junior high up through high school and into college. And as a consequence of that, I spent a considerable amount of time under various assistant coaches and head coaches. Now, among the many duties that fall to a sports coach, and especially to a head coach, is you have to be a motivator and you have to be an encourager of people. You have to be part teacher, you have to be part psychologist, and part cheerleader. In high school, I had a great head coach, and he was always trying to come up with the locker room speeches that would motivate you uh, to try harder and encourage you to do and to be more than you were. And I recall two of his most memorable locker room moments, at least for me. There was a time when, after not having played well on a Friday night, he had diagnosed the problem as being that his players, in particular, the starters, were thinking that they were so good that they could, couldn't could be replaced. And so they weren't playing at 100 percent. That was his diagnosis. They weren't trying as hard as they could. And so on Monday before practice at the team meeting, he puts all this out in front of us with a scowling glare. And he was a big man. He had, played some pro ball in, in the NFL, and he was just a big man. And you, you, he got your attention just by looking at you and glaring at you. And he really lays into the starters and, and stares each one of us down. And then kind of as the exclamation point to this speech, he pulls out a bucket of water and he sets it on the table. And then he says, gentlemen, watch carefully. And he sticks his hand into the bucket of water and he pulls it out rapidly. And he says, did you see that? Did you see the hole that was left when I pulled my hand out of the water? He said, that's how long you'll be missed around here if you don't start performing better. (laughs) And we all had eyes this big, you know. And I think we played better that week, right? Another time he, he made the observation that we really weren't playing as a team. Uh, We're on the field. We're playing like 11 individuals who just happen to all be wearing the same uniform and so on Monday at the team meeting. He explains this and and then to make his point, he pulls out a handful of wooden tongue depressors uh, from from kind of from the medical supplies. And so uh, he calls the strongest guy on our team up to the front, a big offensive guard by the name of Eddie. And he gives Eddie one of these tongue depressors, and he says, break this. And, of course, Eddie just breaks it easily. And then he gives Eddie this bundle of tongue depressors
1: and says, now, Eddie,
0: break these. And I still remember this as if it was yesterday. I remember Eddie bulging muscles, face turning red as he tried every way he could to break that bundle of tongue depressors. And of course, he couldn't do it. And then the coach's point was he said, Men, play like a team, and no one can break you. Play for yourself, and you're already broken. And that got my attention. I mean, that's still with me, you know, 45 years after the fact. Motivate and encourage. That's what coaches do, right? That's what what they do, and they're really good at it. But it's not just what coaches do. It's not just what sport coaches do. It's also what an aged apostle and pastor did once as well. It's what John, one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, does today. In this part of the letter that we come to this morning, chapter 2, Verses 12, 13, and 14. Pastor John encourages and motivates the congregation that he serves, that he coaches, if you will, to live like the real, genuine, authentic Christians that they are. In fact, if you have been with us on this journey uh, through First John up to this point in our series, you know by now that John wrote this letter so that anyone could read it and know if, if they or someone else was really a Christian or not. Thus the title, Being Real Christians in an Unreal World. That is what the book of First John is all about. John would say without any hesitation that you can tell the real Christian from the unreal one in three ways. By what they believe, by how they behave, and by how they love. Real Christians believe very specific things about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about themselves. Real Christians behave in very tangible, observable ways, not with perfection, but with consistency over the long haul. They are committed to obeying the word of God. They behave in certain ways. And real Christians love God and they love each other in very real, tangible, unmistakable ways. And so over the course of five chapters, John cycles repeatedly through the beliefs, the behaviors and the loves of those who are real deal followers of Jesus Christ, real Christians, contrasting them with those who are professing to be real, but really are not real. Now, today, having made one pass through each of these three arenas, beliefs in chapter 1, verse 1, up through chapter 2, verse 2, and then addressing behavior for the first time in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, and then last time we were together addressing for the first time the issue of love in a Christian's life, chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, John, like a good coach, is going to pause in his his delivery of these, these truths, and he's going to talk to his players, the Christians in the churches that he pastors, and he is going to give them some encouragement. Just wants to stop and encourage them. As you see there on your note page, encouragement is always a good idea. There's never a bad time to bring an encouraging word, is there? Never a bad time for that. And apparently, Holy Spirit led... John senses that this is the time for that. Having just challenged these first century Christians to love each other authentically in the preceding verses, he now breaks from exhorting to encouraging. And here's what he says. Verse 12. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I'm writing you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is the section that occupies our attention this morning in and, and it is really easy to see that John is pausing here to reassure these brothers and sisters um, that they are they are exhibiting reliable, unmistakable signs of true salvation in their lives. He's assuring them that they're 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 in the right place. They're in the safe place. Unlike my head coach who said, hey, if you don't get it together, you're gone. <laughs> and, and, and it'll be fast. It'll be quick. That's not what he says here. John is saying that because of their relationship with their God, it's impossible for these Christians uh, to, to, to not be their, their Christian life to not be in evidence. And John is seeing it and he's encouraging them. Their faith is the real deal. He currently is addressing three groups in this in this passage of scripture, encouraging the three groups within this church, these churches that that John oversees, three groups, children, young men and fathers. He gives a commendation to each group and then he does it again, doesn't he? Children, young men and fathers kind of kind of a double affirmation. Once wasn't enough. He's going to do it twice just to make sure they really feel encouraged by him. Now, the question that many ask when they read this section is who is John referring to here in this passage? See, most of the ink that is written uh, in this section by Bible experts is spent trying to identify who are the children, the young men and the fathers. Well, I've done a lot of reading, so I think I can save us a little bit of time. There are some possibilities, a couple of possibilities. He could simply be be describing kind of a a stylistic, broad brush, creative way Christians at various various stages of their of their physical life, from the youngest to the oldest in the church. And so this is just kind of a creative way to address everyone. Now, I read that and I think about that. And that's kind of a weak, a weak place to go in, in this moment. Some Something John's referring to three offices within the church that he's talking about deacons and elders and bishops, that he's encouraging the church leadership here. But I think that's really a stretch. You have to read a lot into the text to come away with that being the identity of these three groups, especially since there are only two formal leadership offices in the church. What are they? Deacons and elders, right? You don't have three offices. Biblically, scripturally. So most, and and I would be among these, would see John describing three major stages of spiritual growth or maturity that Christians can be at as they make this faith journey with Jesus in their church community. You'll see this perspective reflected there in the middle of your note page there. Let's take a closer look at these verses and let's see what we discover together. Now, verse 12, let's start with verse 12, just to be sure we're careful students of the word. It is actually a verse that's addressing all three groups at once. I am writing to you, little children, John says, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, John is making a statement to all of his Christian readers here, not just to one specific group. And we know this for a couple of different reasons. John's special phrase, little children, have you heard that before? Yeah, you did. You read that back in chapter 2 and verse 1. This is his own personal uh, term of endearment for those that he pastors and cares for in the churches of Asia Minor. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He was talking to everybody there. This is his favorite phrase, to talk to the body. And he'll use little children another five times after he uses it here again in verse 12 of chapter 2. So a total of seven times we're going to hear this phrase from John in his epistle. He loves this way of referring to believers and seeing them as as kind of like his spiritual kids. He is over eighty years of age at this point, and so almost everybody's going to be younger than him. And so he's their spiritual father. He calls them his little children. He just addresses everybody. But we also know that he's speaking in general terms to everyone in verse twelve, because he'll actually use a different Greek word for children in verse thirteen than he does here in verse 12. In verse 13, he uses a word that literally means toddlers and babes. And that's not what he's doing in verse 12. In verse 13, it's toddlers and babes. In verse 12, he uses a much broader word Uh, term for children that can go all the way up through teenagers, those who are still under their parents' authority. So two different Greek words. And again, this is how John sees himself. He sees him as a spiritual father to these believers. And so he uses a different word in 12 than he will do in 13. And so if I were to paraphrase verse 12, he's in effect saying, to all who I am writing, to all my little children, I know that you're the real deal Because you have all put your faith in Jesus and by virtue of his redeeming work in your life on the cross and your faith in that which he has done, your sins are forgiven. You're real. That's what he says in verse 12.
1: And then having
0: said that, he moves from this general encouragement to everybody to specific encouragement that focuses on these same Christians, but who are at various stages of growth in their relationship with their God. He'll encourage the new believer. He'll encourage those who have been in Christ for a while and, and they're more mature. And then he will address the most mature as well in the church family. The children, then the young men, and then finally the fathers. Every real Christian in the churches that John cares for is going to be in one of these three groups. And just like that, everybody in this room who is in a faith relationship with Jesus is in one of these three groups. We're all either children or we are young men or we are fathers in the way that he is using those terms. And so let's consider each one of these and for ease of flow and progression of thought, um, let's start with the children. And we'll just move from the children to the young men and then to the fathers. Verse 13, John says, I write to you, children, because you what? You know the father. That's what he says. You know the father. So John is addressing here the newest members in God's forever family. These are brand new believers in Christ. One of the distinguishing characteristics of what we might call a baby Christian is that they are consumed with this new relationship that they are discovering with God and with the Lord Jesus. They have, they have come to know God and to know Jesus savingly. And it's a brand new experience to be in this relationship to know God in this way. Often brand new Christians have an overflowing joy and an energy that that, that just comes from this first time realization that, wow, I really am loved by the God of the universe so much that he would die for me. That blows me away. Have you been around new Christians? Do you know how they have that, that exuberance? They they discover this is really it. This is this is an amazing thing. I no longer have to deal with the sin in my life and bear the guilt and the alienation that that produces. I know God, they will say. They know God in a relational way, a saving way that they had not known was even possible before they were introduced to Jesus. And so they talk about him openly. They talk about Jesus openly excitedly they want everybody to know that they know right and they're not afraid or ashamed to tell you and John is is speaking to that he's saying you know the father more seasoned Christians love to be around new believers don't you like to be around those who have just come to faith in Jesus it's great they delight you as a more mature Christian you just delight in hearing their story how they came to faith in Christ uh, you applaud them for their exuberant love, their eager, sincere devotion, their radical change of lifestyle. In some cases, you're there, and, and you just you just encourage them, and you just like being around them. They're they're gaining new friendships, they're building new relationships in this place that they are just now discovering called their church. And new believers often have a very optimistic viewpoint about their Christian life. It's just Roses, isn't it? For them. New believers are just fun. However, the mature want to be around the children as well, because they know that a choice to follow Jesus is a, a choice to walk a hard and narrow road. Declaring faith and love in Je- for Jesus is declaring war on Satan and his kingdom. And Satan doesn't take that very well. And and so just like little children need their parents' protection because they can be naive and easily influenced, so the seasoned want to be around the babes and protect them against spiritual dangers, false teachers, demon-inspired lies that could, you know, could steal their hearts away. And so 1 John was written in part for that very reason. As we've, we've been discovering, John is encouraging the children, longing for them to keep going and growing To become more. To become eventually young men. Ah, the young men. Verses 13 and 14. Who are they? Well, they're the not so brand new lovers of Jesus. I'm writing to you, verse 13, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. And then in verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, those in this second group or this second phase of spiritual growth, they still glory in their relationship with the father, with the Lord Jesus, with the Holy Spirit. That doesn't change. You still are thrilled about your relationship with God. But now spirit led, these are Christians who have moved beyond the milk of the gospel, that introduction, and they want the meat. They have a passion now to know more about the word of God, about divine truth. They understand that their whole life is going to be defined by their theology and that their theology is going to flow directly out of their source of truth. And the source of truth for the Christian is what? It's the scriptures, isn't it? It's God's word. The psalmist writes these words. You know this. Psalm 119, 105. What does it say? Your word is what? It's a lamp to my feet. It is a light to my path. The young men, they believe this. Not just the young men, but the young women as well. Those who are in this place in their journey with Jesus. These are the Christians who literally live out 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A workman who has no need to be ashamed. Rightly handling what? The word of truth. Yeah. Yeah. Those in this group, both men and women, have successfully moved beyond the elementary struggles that typically confront a brand new Christian. They have a biblical worldview now. Everything in their life gets pushed through the grid of, well, what does Scripture say about that in my life? Their theology, their grasp of God's truth, what we would call doctrine, is largely in place by now. And they have a mature love for the Word of God. They desire to to defend it. They desire to share it. They desired to live it out with obedience, with integrity. And this is why John can encourage them and say to them, young men, the word of God abides in you. It's living in you and you are strong in doctrinal truth. And with that sword of the word of God, you have already overcome the temptations of the evil one many times. This is a proof of being real, John would say. You love the word, and you live the word, and you overcome the evil one. And then the third group to receive their assurance of being real from the coach, if you will, is the fathers. And this is the group that has traveled the farthest in their journey with Jesus. These don't only understand and know how to apply the word of God to their lives. They have come to know the God who wrote the word. And there is a difference, isn't there? You can know the truth and not really know very well the one who wrote the truth. Verse 13, fathers, you know him. Verse 14, you know him who is from the beginning. And the kind of knowing that John is thinking of here is not mere intellectual knowing. This is personal, experiential knowing. You've been down the road with God for a good long time. You've done life together. The fathers are the men and the women who have, who have meditated on the breadth and the depth of God's character as he's revealed in the scriptures. And they've come to know the person of God and not merely the theology of him. They've done this to such an extent, and they've done it for a long enough period of time, trusting God with their greatest joys and their most desperate heartaches and and losses and fears that they can confidently say that they don't just know about God. Hey, they really do know Him. His character of faithfulness and tenderness, compassion, mercy, strength, wisdom, guidance, devotion, love. They've experienced God in these ways. God has gone with them every step of the way and they have a deep, intimate, personal relationship with him. That's the fathers. We probably all at one time or another had the unpleasant experience of being around a Christian who, who's a walking theology textbook and can quote chapters and verses and lay out the rules for you and tell us how many angels dance on the head of a pen. They can do all of those things but they're they're harsh, they're cold, they're unfeeling, and to be around them you feel like you're, you're you're either getting beaten up or you're being measured, right? We've all been around Christians like that. Such Christians have the truth of God. They have the truth of Jesus, but they don't have the heart of Jesus. They don't have the heart of God because they don't know Him in that relational way. In a sense, the most mature Christians have come full circle. They they began their spiritual journey as children, captivated by their relationship with Jesus, knowing and believing that they're sinners loved and saved by him, but now they kind of come full circle into this third group and the emphasis again is primarily on relationship with the eternal God who has been with them from the beginning. Only now the relationship is much is marked by a much richer deeper, informed knowledge. Faithfulness of God, his unfailing faithfulness is a dominant feature of their understanding of him. Time and trials and clinging to God in intimate, unfiltered prayer in those dark, dark moments, those scary moments creates a depth of trust in God that that really can't be fully described. God has been faithful from the beginning, and the most mature have experienced that. Many in this room have experienced that. Your fathers in John's understanding. It's really not unlike the bond that we hear soldiers speak of who have gone to war, and they've shared the battlefield, and they lived through the harrowing uh, trials and the deadly firefights that come with with being in war and in battle. Those soldiers shared that experience together and and they will tell you that they now know and they love and they trust each other in a way that is almost impossible to describe. The, The band of brothers idea is very real. And that's really the third group of believers here in their relationship with God. They've been through the battles with God and God has been faithful and he can be trusted and they know him. I was trying to think of examples of this from the scripture. And one example that just leaped off the page to me uh, was the example of Job in the Old Testament. Think about Job for a moment. If you're familiar with Job's story, you know that his name is synonymous with what? With suffering. It's synonymous with suffering and with loss and with deep pain. At the hands of Satan... Job loses all that he counts as precious. He's stripped of absolutely everything. And it comes down in the end to just him and his God. And it is in this desperate time that God reveals himself to Job in an extraordinary way. And this will prompt Job to say at the very end of his book, in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, these words. I now what? I now know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You are the supreme sovereign. You are in total control. I know you in this way. And then Job confesses to God. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Job says, man, I had an incomplete an immature view of You before all of this came into my life, all of this loss and suffering and pain. But You were with me in this and I now know You in a way I did not know You before. Verse 5, I had heard of You by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye, what? Sees You. What's He saying? I know You. I know you in a rich, deep, intimate, personal way. And then in verse 6 he says, Therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes for ever having criticized you. Through my suffering I have come to know you in a way I never did before. I retract all of my prior ideas and understandings of you. I repent of those. You are so much more than I could have ever imagined. I heard you, now I see you. This is the really mature in the faith. Maturity born out of the fires of trial. If you'll flip your note page over for a second, I wanted to grab a New Testament example of this if I could, um, this kind of maturity. And I landed on the person of the Apostle Paul and this comes from the very same passage that Brandon and I read for us at the opening of our time. This is from Philippians chapter 3, beginning of verse 7. Paul is in prison. He's lost his freedom. He's lost everything. He's being held in prison for his love for Jesus. And here's what he says, verse 7 and following. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. For the sake of Christ, it doesn't matter all the things I've lost. I have Jesus. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, not in a superficial kind of head knowledge way, but really knowing him experientially. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ. Right? And the power of his resurrection His resurrection power living and flowing out of me. The fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. Reflecting that same sacrificing love that he reflected. I want that. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Man, who talks like that? Who talks like that? I'll tell you who talks like that. Spiritual fathers talk like that. They've lived life. They've experienced things. They've seen through the shallows and the shadows of this world. And they know that knowing Jesus, not just knowing about him, but knowing Jesus is the ultimate relationship. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Brothers and sisters, when we come across someone like this, like these spiritual fathers be they a man or a woman we need to do everything we can to get time with them to be with them men with men women with women we need to listen to them we need to hear their stories of God's faithfulness and grace in their lives you will never regret spending time with the spiritual fathers in your circle of relationships would you agree with that we need to do that. There's a great resource there. And 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 just to to so that we're we're not misunderstanding here, uh, as we talk about and move through these three groups, we need to understand that spiritual maturity is not necessarily being a Christian who is old chronologically. Okay? We need to say that. Spiritual maturity is reflected in a Christian who deeply knows and treasures the Father and the Son. They know the Word, not thoroughly or completely, because no one can ever know it thoroughly, but they, they have a real handle on God's truth. And they are living obediently in a sinful world, uh, saying no to, in their thoughts and their speech and their actions to the, to the temptations of this world. Again, they don't do it perfectly, but... But they are doing it consistently over time, seeking to obey the Lord. And they know their God relationally. This can be said of many who have been Christians for a long time and are very old. This can also be said of some Christians who have not been Christians all that long. But they have come to know God in this way. So chronological age doesn't necessarily mean maturity. And being young doesn't mean that you're not mature. Are we clear? Yeah. So John says, children, young men, fathers, new believers, more mature and the well seasoned. You are real. You're the real deal. Your sins are forgiven. You love the word. You're living the truth. You're fighting well in a sin dark world. You've overcome Satan's strategies. And though you had once heard of God by the hearing of the ear, you now see him. With the eyes of your heart. John would have made a good coach, wouldn't he? Encouraging and motivating those who were under his care. Now, as we wrap things up here, this short little three-verse portion of chapter 2 begs a couple of questions by way of practical application. First, let's ask the question, are you and I, brothers and sisters, are we growing up in Jesus Are we growing up in terms of our Christian maturity? The clear expectation of the Holy Spirit in the Word of God is that we are always, for the whole of our Christian life, growing, moving from being spiritual children to being young men to being the fathers. We're never content to just stay where we are. I remember hearing of an elderly gentleman who loved to go to the local pool But he had never learned to swim. He would just walk around in the shallow end. One day someone asked him, why have you never learned to swim? And he said, I guess I always just stayed too close to where I got in. Oh, that's interesting. Now that, sadly, does describe some Christians staying too close to where they got in. They've stayed too close to where they got in with Jesus. And then for whatever reason, carelessness, maybe overcommitment, maybe distractions or, or even laziness. Decades pass and they really have not grown very much. You ever met a Christian like that? I have. It's, it's, it's sad. They stayed too close to where they got in. On your note page, here are some encouragements from the scriptures to all of us. From 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But what? What's the next word? Grow. grow but grow. Grow, grow, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and for to the day of eternity. How about Ephesians four fourteen fifteen? 15? so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes don't remain a babe rather speaking the truth in love we are to what says paul we are to grow up in every way to him who is into him who is the head that is into christ hebrews chapter 6 verse 1 therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of christ and go on to what maturity. And First Peter 2.2, 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Brothers and sisters, the only way that we can progress on this road of spiritual growth from children to young men to fathers is through the living life transforming application of the word of God into our lives. Agreed? We've got to be in the book. We've got to know the book. And then we've got to know the author of the book. Are you, am I, availing ourselves of every opportunity that we have in this place to grow? Life groups, um, Sundays, Sundays shared together, yes. But midweek life group involvement, special fellowship times that we get to be together, being with one another midweek. The call is upon all of us to never stop growing, no matter how young or how old we are in the faith. In fact, John would say, hey, growing up, that's a part of real. That's, what, that's a proof of being real. You're growing. And so I would ask you, are you growing? Are you growing up in your journey with Jesus? And then a second question that John would prompt, uh, John's words would prompt us to ask is, is there someone... In my circle, who could really use some encouragement today? That's my other takeaway from this passage. Maybe even today, is there someone in my circle who needs to be encouraged? John sensed that his church family needed encouraging. Is there someone in your circle who needs to be encouraged? And if so, what would keep you from being their encourager? From Hebrews chapter 10, 25. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but what? Encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Or 1 Thessalonians five, eleven. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. You know, in your bulletin this morning, it's no accident that we put a little uh, green encouragement card in your bulletin. Why did we do that? To encourage you. To encourage someone else. Because that's what we're supposed to be doing in this place called Idlewild Bible Church. Hebrews 3.13, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Encouragement protects us. From the schemes of the enemy in just a moment, I am going to give us all of us, myself included, an opportunity to to pray a prayer that might go something like this. You'll frame it however you choose to frame it. Holy Spirit, give me a name in this moment, an individual, perhaps a family, a couple, a single person. Someone perfectly healthy or someone perhaps very, very sick. Very young, maybe very old. A brand new Christian, a child, maybe a seasoned saint, a father. Give me a name and then reveal how you would have me encourage them. A note, a call, a text, a gift a visit, a card, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to give you a name of someone that you could encourage. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are, what? Doing. We've got to be doing it, right? And I trust, church family, that the Lord has encouraged you today. Today as you have spent time in his word with him. Let's pray together. And as we do pray, Heavenly Father, I come to you humbly uh, thanking you for the challenge that comes from your word today. We have been encouraged, especially if we look back over the landscape of our life and we see how you have faithfully, faithfully been growing us up in you from, from babes to the young men to the fathers and, And we just thank you that you are so faithful to do that. I thank you for my friends in this church family who are at every point along this spectrum. And we are all growing together in this place as we do life with you. In this moment, though, of of application, Heavenly Father, we want to just take a moment uh, to to allow each of us to talk to you and, and ask you for a name. There is someone. We know it. There is someone in each of our circles. Who needs to be encouraged? So give us a name as we ask you for it now. Well, Heavenly Father, I'm trusting that every person here has now got a name or a family and they have something that you want them to do. Show them how they can be a great encourager today or this week to someone. Who desperately needs that. We love you, Lord. We really do love you here, but only because you loved us first. And we sing to your great praise now. And all God's people said, "Amen and amen." Shall we stand, Brendan? Sure. Let's stand, everybody. If you want